arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Welcome to the world of weird science fiction, phantasmagoric bending of reality, and cruel and unusual life circumstances. Tonight we get away from the novels and subdivide my short stories and novellas into seven episodes. In No Place Like Home, Don Murdoch enters his aunt's house of the past, where he must decide whether to change the past, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Murdoch and his fiancée return to the town where he grew up. Veronica leaves for the West Coast while Murdoch rehabs his Aunt Greta's house. What happens between the inner house and the outer world is inconceivable in human reality. Mr. Greenwald's Tear Garden. Sidney B. Greenwald is sold a bill of goods and attempts to leave the contrived realities created by a tear garden and a man named Jackson. The Last Rites of Dottie O'Leary. The great Francesco transforms Rick and Reader to face the sins of the past and the woman he murdered years ago. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Let's begin the short stories. No Place Like Home, Mr. Greenwald's Tear Garden, and The Last Rites of Dottie O'Leary. No Place Like Home, a short story by Robert P. Fitton. Because of Aunt Greta's violent and sudden death, Murdoch knew Veronica feared everything about the house, but he longed for her to see where he had spent his summers as a youth. Aunt Greta died years ago, and the house, spoils from his cousin's will, needed repair. Veronica would see the house and return to the West Coast while he made arrangements to sell the property. He ignored his reoccurring nightmares of thick clouds encircling the house and eerie noises hidden in the moonlit garden. Instead, his mind traveled back to the warm summer days, listening to Aunt Greta's music box melodies on the porch, or chasing the elusive fireflies with Richie and Ralphie Evans. The chirping crickets reverberated in the July twilight as he played hide-and-go-seek with the Crandall kids. Once they left the highway and rumbled over the rolling rural roads, Veronica made an effort to be pleasant. He could have sent her home to San Francisco instead of dragging her into his past. They drove along the once green farm fields, now staked with tracked housing and asphalt roads and stockade fences. The Evans's tiny wood corner store had been transformed into a yellow cinder block supermarket. He veered right and over the hill toward Aunt Greta's house. Time had molded his summer homestead into a dull remnant of its once vital appearance. The deep gray paint hung on sagging clapboards, and the original century-old window glass was replaced by weathered plywood sheets. Murdoch stopped the car and wandered outside. He crossed the cracked sidewalk to the rusted wrought-iron gate. 
The front yard, overgrown with wavy grass, had become a repository for cans, bottles, and soggy paper. The gate squeaked as Veronica's car door slammed and he crossed the sunken cement slabs. Looks like it needs a lot of work, she called. It's disgusting is what it is. Murdoch pushed aside the porch's numerous spider webs below the rotted ceiling boards. It would look better if the grass were cut and paint would bring it back to life. Just put it on the market and get what you can for it, and then come back home. He stepped onto the loose floorboards. You're not thinking of fixing this up, are you? I don't know. He turned to the darkened door glass. Donnie, we're going to be married in two weeks. There's nothing left here for you. Hire a realtor and let him worry about unloading the place. Murdoch timed each of his steps over the wooden floorboards and stroked his chin. Give me ten days. I need to do this, Veronica. Then I'll fly back and we'll forget about Aunt Greta's house forever. From the sidewalk, she stared at the upper boarded windows as he created a matted trail across the tall grass. He promised to call her periodically during the next ten days and they would be married upon his return to the city. At the front gate, Murdoch, suitcase at his feet, kissed her goodbye. She got in the car and brought it around. The beeping horn startled him, and she quickly disappeared down the hill. As the hot sun dried his pores, he walked upright onto the porch and pinched the cooler steel house key. The gray-haired man reflected in the dark door window provided ample evidence the narrow-shouldered, chestnut-haired boy lived in the past. The door flew open when he turned the key. Sunlight swept across the sheet-covered living room furniture as stagnant air escaped outside. Aunt Greta had lived here. He peered down the hallway to the Dutch Louvre kitchen doors, and his eyes followed the wooden banister to the darkened second floor. Curling his fingers, he pushed the window plywood. The rusted nails loosened with a mournful wail, and the plywood keeled over. Like a madman determined to unleash buried demons, he attacked the adjoining windows, and by sunset, plywood sheets were strewn across the yard grass. With his hands on his hips, he anchored himself on the quiet street, and he sensed he had brought life back to Aunt Greta's house. At an uncompromising pace through the week, Murdoch carefully returned the furniture, lamps, and his aunt's novelties to their old location. With the electricity restored, he turned his energies outside. He sharpened Aunt Greta's pushmore blades and sliced the wispy grass to a buzz-cut exactness. Weeds, yanked from her rich soil garden, revealed narrow-stemmed orange tiger lilies and a scattering of gold-black-eyed Susans. For days, he scraped the clapboards and joyfully applied layer after layer of gray paint as he restored the house to match his boyhood memories. He extended a dinner invitation to the Evans boys. Hefty in frame, with smooth, bald heads, they chain-smoked stinky cigars and marveled at his reconstruction. Except for his aunt's old landscape picture over the fireplace, everything looked remarkably like the old days. Richie detailed events Murdoch had long forgotten, while his brother provided spice to the stories. They both wanted to meet Veronica and pleaded with Murdoch to stay in the house. Nearing midnight as they prepared to leave, something dragged slowly across his aunt's second-floor bedroom. 
Murdoch shot up the hallway staircase, flipped the bedroom light switch, but saw nothing. The three men searched upstairs and the attic. An old picture must have fallen, or perhaps the floor joist had just cracked with age. He accompanied his friends into the balmy summer air. The front gate still needed oil. They moved onto the street and climbed the hill to the supermarket parking lot. The Evans boys headed for their new contemporary home across the street, but Murdoch ran to the payphone near the supermarket's automatic doors. He tapped out Veronica's number and the line rang, but as he turned back toward Aunt Greta's house, the lights blinked off and only the dim streetlight lamp illuminated the murky facade. Veronica's voice punctuated the answering machine greeting as he glanced back at the house. Aunt Greta's second-floor bedroom suddenly brightened. The answering machine beeped, but he held the receiver loosely and let it dangle. He jogged across the parking lot and down the road, his eyes fixed to the second-floor Tiffany window lamp. He wiped his wet forehead and breathed rapidly as something darted by the window and the lamp went dark. Saturated sweat darkened his pink sports shirt as he raced up the sidewalk. He ran across the porch floorboards and unlocked the door, but during the next 15 minutes, a complete search of the house from the dusty attic rafters down to the humid dirt floor basement revealed nothing. He thought Aunt Greta's bedroom had a hint of lilac scent as he cautiously stepped forward and turned on the window light. His aunt's bedtime stories reverberated in his head as he touched her quilted country bedspread. The brass lamp must have loosened. After locking the house, he retreated up the stairs into his old bedroom with the sports wallpaper across from Aunt Greta's room. He turned on the wood veneer floor model radio, and while he waited for the tubes to warm, twisted the air conditioner knob. A rock music beat competed with the air conditioner's chilling fan as he crawled into his boyhood bed. Tomorrow, he would call the realtor, forget about the past, and move on. He awoke in the morning light's freezing air, checked the realtor's number in his pocket notebook, and then lumbered downstairs to the front door. Fog swirled around the outside beveled glass, and the door popped like a soda can opening. He pushed through the cloudy mass and staggered into the sunlight's glare, but the porch shook when the door slammed behind him. The hell is going on here? The town's white-haired postman called from the street. By God, if it doesn't look like it used to! Murdoch glanced at the door again, and the postman opened the front gate. I don't suppose any mail is coming to this house. Well, not since Greta died. I hear you putting the house on the market. Today, and then I'm getting married. I was surprised to see you fix the old place up. Then again, there's a reason for everything we do in this life, isn't there? Yeah, I guess that's true. Zip wished him good luck with his upcoming marriage. Murdoch now felt the urge to leave town and get back to the faster-paced city life. He stood on the porch, watching a persistent bulldozer push back the earth near the new condos down the hill. His hand covered the dull brass knob, but the inner mechanism stuck. Come on, what's the matter with this thing? He nudged the door, but it flung open with a considerable force. The kitchen's table radio blasted through an icy cold fog. A fine ballad from a fine artist. WXC time is approaching 10 o'clock. 
And now, time for the news headlines. Are you there? Murdoch brushed away the fog and edged his way inside. The front door closed and he spun around. The room furniture was moved and the old beige window shades cut a soft glow over the colorful braided rugs. Bare trees cut deep shadows over the fallen leaves. Aunt Greta's landscape picture was now hung above the fireplace. Good morning and here is the news for Friday, November 22nd, 1963. 1963? President Kennedy this morning spoke in front of the Chamber of Commerce breakfast in Fort Worth, Texas. President stressed Fort Worth's role in America's national security. Mr. Kennedy is accompanied by his wife, Jackie, Vice President Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird, Governor and Mrs. John Conley. The party will take a short flight to Dallas, where the President will address a midday lunch at the trademark in the city. November 22nd. Donald, is that you? His aunt's voice came in from the kitchen, and the aroma of bacon and eggs crept through the house. Murdoch, his face pressed into a frightful stare, watched his Aunt Greta, clad in her white sweater, flowery dress, and red paisley apron, stood behind half-louvered doors. Is something wrong, Donald? She looked over her shoulder for a moment. You look upset. Breakfast will be ready soon, dear. Then she disappeared into the kitchen. Murdoch backed against the wallpaper and, breathing erratically, clutched the doorframe. Through the window, he saw Mrs. Bryant's yellow house with bare trees spread across the wide yard. As he bounced from window to window, the open fields abounded. Atop the hill, huge framed cars with long fins and white wall tires were parked along the Evans corner store. The younger Crandall kids arched into the air on a tire swing looped over the wide branch of a magnificent oak tree. Donald, it's time for the Today Show. I know how much you like to watch Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters before you go to the factory. I'll bring your breakfast in there. Murdoch bolted for the outside door but slipped on the hallway throw rug. He yanked and pulled, prodded and pounded, but the door would not budge. Aunt Greta's work shoes tapped against the linoleum, and a few seconds later she turned on the parlor television. Murdoch, gripped with tension, moved slowly into the living room as the weatherman presented the Today Show forecast on the bulky black and white box. A brown plastic antenna wire was snaked across the floor, and on the red calico placemat was a steaming plate of bacon and eggs and a large, moist glass of orange juice. This is some kind of damn joke! Donald! Donald! She said from the kitchen, Please don't be disruptive or I'll have to get your medicine. She carried a plate of toast into the parlor and set it next to the orange juice. Who are you? Why, I'm Aunt Greta, of course. Let me get your phenobarbital. That will settle you down before you go to work. Why am I back here on this day? Film footage of President Kennedy in a Texas parade the night before appeared on the screen. Murdoch checked for some sort of video hookup. I don't want to be here. He looked into his aunt's serene blue eyes as she turned with a silver tablespoon and a brown glass bottle half filled to the top. Murdoch skirted by her into the kitchen phone. Quickly he spun the rotary dial, waiting at each turn for Veronica's number to click, but the connection never went through. Aunt Greta stood in the parlor doorway, 
Who are you calling, dear? This is absurd. He hung up the receiver and rushed to the kitchen door. Fields with yellowed corn stalks appeared behind a row of trees. Do I have to break this damn glass? Get me out of here! Oh my God, Donald, you're having another episode! Aunt Greta's persistent sobs fostered his guilt. Murdoch turned and calmly walked across the linoleum. I'm sorry. He studied her round face and slowly wiped the tears off her rosy cheeks. I... I didn't mean to make you cry. Is it over, Donald? Are you all right now? You really are Aunt Greta. His own eyes moistened. You're my Aunt Greta. Alive. Of course, dear, of course. She wiped the remaining tears and set the amber bottle and spoon down on the pink formica. Wait. Wait, there has to be a reason why I'm here, Aunt Greta. President Kennedy. That's it. Murdoch then pivoted on the braided rug and scurried directly for the front door. He skidded out of the fog and across the porch and stepped out of the past. The house appeared as he had left it minutes ago, the postman advancing down the sidewalk only three houses away. But within the confines of his aunt's house, President Kennedy headed for disaster in Dallas. Murdoch again entered the swirling fog, sauntering across the porch floorboards. Aunt Greta watched TV in the parlor. Donald, I'm glad you decided to come back inside, Donald. I was about to call Sergeant Blake. You know how he hates it when you misbehave. Sure. He strutted to the kitchen phone as the brass-faced mantel clock in the parlor clanged nine times. Kennedy's death occurred at 12.30 Dallas time. Who are you calling now, Donald? Work? I have already told them you'd be late, dear. She glanced down at the phenobarbital bottle. Calling the local people might get him arrested and no word would ever get out to Dallas. He gripped the phone and poignantly understood the ramifications. The FBI might be the logical choice because they could communicate directly to the agents in the field. It really wouldn't matter if they arrested him. He would simply run outside into the present. Operator, give me the number of the FBI office in Dallas, Texas. FBI? Aunt Greta gasped. This has gone far enough. Donald, put down that telephone. He spoke with great emotion as he waited for the number. Aunt Greta, you don't understand. I can't let the president go to Dealey Plaza. I don't know what this place is or why you're alive again, but it's 1963 inside this house. Donald, we can't be threatening our president. When he turned, Aunt Greta had left the room and he hung up the phone. The operator barked out a phone number and Murdoch quickly scrawled it onto the chalkboard next to the phone. When he turned, Aunt Greta left the room and he hung up the phone. Aunt Greta, please, please come back. I have to explain this to you. Murdoch requested the operator first place a call to Veronica's San Francisco home. He repeatedly looked for his Aunt Greta as the phone line rang. A boy answered the phone and Murdoch, wondering if he had dialed the wrong number, asked to speak with Veronica. A little girl, claiming to be Veronica, spoke on the phone and she told him how she was coloring with her crayons. As he looked at the TV, his aunt rounded the corner and pointed his uncle's vintage rifle directly at his head. Quickly, 
Murdoch blurted out Aunt Greta's number and hung up the phone. Aunt Greta's hands shook between deep breaths. Donald, maybe you'll have to go back to the institution. You can't be threatening President Kennedy. Murdoch locked his eyes on the steel barrel. Aunt Greta, please. How would you feel if they kill Kennedy today? Donald, if you'd just taken your medicine. Murdoch looked at the plastic kitchen clock and hit the butt of his hand against his forehead. Aunt Greta, please. They're going to kill President Kennedy. Everything will be all right, Donald. No, everything will not be all right. He grabbed the phone again, but she moved like a foot soldier and thrust the gun inches from his head. Oh, come on. You're a sick boy, Donald. I will call Sergeant Blake if you don't put down that phone. She circled left, lifted the eraser to the black chalkboard, and obliterated the FBI number. Murdoch gripped the receiver tightly and chucked it against the wall. He gazed at the crack receiver, colored wires hanging, and the earpiece on the floor. Oh, no. My one link. My one link. For the next few hours, Murdoch attempted to repair the phone. Aunt Greta left him alone and started washing laundry. Just after 12.30, he lifted the phone and a clear dial tone burst through. With the FBI number neatly memorized, Murdoch asked the operator to connect him with the field office. When Aunt Greta appeared with the gun again, Murdoch kept talking. Is this the FBI office? Okay, listen carefully. She cocked the trigger. Don't let President Kennedy go through Dealey Plaza. He will be shot and killed. You have at least an hour to divert the motorcade and stop this. Murdoch hung up the phone and closed his eyes. Aunt Greta slowly lowered the gun and dropped it on the floor. Oh, what have you done, Donald? Murdoch inched forward and held her shoulders. Don't worry, Aunt Greta, don't worry. Murdoch sipped a cup of coffee from a huge maroon soup mug and ate his third grilled cheese sandwich as he watched the soap opera. The mantel clock chimed at 1.30. With no reported shots at the president, he brought the dishes into the kitchen and put his hand on Aunt Greta's shoulders. It's all right, Aunt Greta. It really is. You don't know what I just prevented. She maintained her silence as she went to the icebox and poured herself a tall glass of cold apple cider. He smiled at the kitchen clock and gazed out the window to the backyard where he played as a boy. Oh, my God! exclaimed Aunt Greta. Murdoch's smile dropped. Across the black and white screen flashed the word bulletin, and he heard the announcer. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. Murdoch dropped the glass and ran into the living room. The first reports say President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by the shooting. More details just arrived. These details about the same as previously. He turned, but Aunt Greta had left the kitchen table. The front door opened and three policemen marched by his aunt. Murdoch scampered to the kitchen and scooped up the rifle. The police circled through the hall and living room as he thrust the gun into the air. With their own guns drawn, the police stopped, but a plain-clothes cop with a yellow checkered tie stepped forward. Put down the gun, Donald. Be a good boy and give the rifle to me. Nothing will happen. Clear the damned hallway. I'm getting out of here. Murdoch 
pulled at the immovable doorknob and then fired, but the glass door remained intact. The detective swung around to the parlor. Donald, hold it! He saw Aunt Greta as he lifted the gun and it went off. Then he heard shooting and stinging across his body as he dropped to the floor. The banister swung above him and blurred. In the background, he heard the TV fading away. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Veronica panicked when she could not locate him. She slowly shuffled up the dilapidated house's front walk, wondering why Donnie had done no renovations. She pushed open the plywood-covered door and peered into the darkened foyer. She saw broken glass scattered across the wooden floor. Hardened blood caked under the banister and the ghost-covered furniture frightened her as she staggered back onto the porch. She had spent the day inquiring about her fiancé and near sunset, a retired police officer brought her to the town's stone church. They walked under the spreading hillside trees into a hazy old graveyard. The older man moved along the weathered headstones and down the hill. He stopped near a wide maple and gazed at a solid gray granite stone. She sobbed softly at the chiseled inscription across the polished stone. Greta Wilson Murdoch, January 23, 1897, November 22, 1963. Donald Knowlton Murdoch, October 18, 1939, November 24, 1963. Veronica reached into her pocketbook, removed a folded coloring book page, and her tears dropped across a crayon-smeared telephone number written over a half-colored grandfather clock. She cast the paper to the wind, turning away as it tumbled down the hill, aware now that time was not always the healer of all wounds. Mr. Greenwald's Tear Garden by Robert P. Fitton He really does believe he's some man named Greenwald, said Dr. Springer. Eddie stepped back and gazed at his wife and faced the doctor. What's the matter, popcorn nuts or something, huh? The doctor took him aside. Mr. Ramirez, I wouldn't exactly use those words around your father. I mean, stop saying Pop's a loony tune? Yeah, I get you. The doctor lowered his voice. Just try and humor him. Humor? I ain't no comedian, Doc. Right. Your father is still medicated, although we have changed the dosage in order to break the apprehension and excitement. Ah, hoofunga. Excuse me? asked Springer. My husband says hoofunger when he'll do what somebody says, but he doesn't understand why, said Gladys. I see. Let's go down to your father's room. Thanks, Doc, said Eddie. Eddie nodded. They marched down to the wire mesh doors and started up the stairs. Hey, why does he still call himself Greenwald? Well, your father's mind is still in great turmoil. He's perturbed by his placement here at the institution. His underlying problems may be more pervasive. Preoccupation with a life of affluence appears to be related to the fact that he never held a steady job in 30 years. This projecting behavior... Hey, he ain't getting dirty, is he? No, Mr. Ramirez. I was referring to a psychological state. Springer opened the upper doors and they walked into Pop's corridor. 
I believe he's trying to place blame in his life on certain irreconcilable factors and dispositions, and his reference to this man named Jackson leaves me baffled. Well, we ain't never heard of no Jackson. Eddie saw Pop at the end of the corridor, and he was hunched over in his red flannel robe and adjusted his black-framed glasses as he turned. Just try and tone down your conversation with him, said Springer. Hey, he's using that color crap in his hair again, Gladys. Eddie walked toward his father. Hey, Pop! Ah, the return of the prodigal son and his wife. Hey, Pop! Giants game starts in a half an hour. Maybe you don't give a shit about football anymore, either. The Giants are really not my problem. Yeah, right, said Eddie, sniffing the ear. Ha, this place always smells like piss. Nature of the beast. Huh? Beast? Not important. How are you, Edward? I'm not bad, Pop. Not bad at all. He looked into his father's wide brown eyes. They giving you them shots? Dr. Springer's use of the mood-alterating drugs is tempering my hostility, for sure. I am fully cognizant of this inexorable situation and take full responsibility for starting this sequence. I really don't know what happened to Jackson. I keep calling him. Hey, Pop, who the hell is Jackson? The man I contracted with, Edward. The man who assured me I could control this reality. Pop looked up at the ceiling. Did you hear that, Jackson? Eddie studied the ceiling, but only saw peeling paint and water stains. Hey, Pop, come on, there ain't no Jackson. Pop produced a huge smile. Oh, I know it's impossible for you to understand who I am. Yeah, you're Frank Ramirez. No, I am Sidney B. Greenwald, and I own a fashion clothing store based in Wilmington, Delaware. I am quite wealthy, or was. Wealthy? You ain't never been wealthy. Eddie saw Springer and Gladys over his shoulder. Ha, this is all bullshit. You never owned a damn thing in your life. Pop nodded and looked out the window. I don't expect you to understand. I understand, yeah. That you made up this stupid story so you could stay in here and no charge. Eddie, you don't realize Jackson's power. Eddie looked at Gladys. Let's just watch the blipping game. They're getting nowhere with this Jackson bullshit. Pop's lying like a bastard. Pop slowly turned and his face tightened as he spoke. I told Jackson I was bored when he came into my office suite. He promised me a virtual world. Guess we all have to live within our world, prefabricated or real. Eddie rolled his eyes and pointed at Springer. Hey, we're out of here. Springer nodded. Gladys pulled her pocketbook over her shoulder as they stepped into the corridor, but Pop's voice trailed out of the room. I really am Sidney B. Greenwald. Greenwald sat alone in the sanitarium and watched the heavy storm clouds advance across the bay as the rain pelted the outside terraces. Car taillights moved like figures on a computer game across the suspension bridge as the trees bent in the wind. Well, Jackson, this isn't a private hell. I don't know what is. It all happens the same as the real world. Wet, cold, rain. I can feel the coolness. I can sense the moisture. The same physical laws. The same human behavior right down to the hatred in Edward's eyes. My God, it is reality. A young man's shadowy figure caught his eye, and a closer inspection revealed a scrawny kid 
loose Johnny hanging from his bones and his dry hair scattered on his oversized head. He slouched along the wall, and when he made eye contact with Greenwald, every interaction seemed to represent an incalculable infraction. Greenwald stood and tightened his plaid robe. My name is Greenwald, Sidney B. The boy turned his head. Don't hit me. I wasn't eavesdropping. I heard you talking. I was just rambling to myself, feeling sorry for my condition in life. What's your name, son? The young man, still refraining from eye contact, inched his way up the plaster wall until he stood upright. His soft blue eyes seemed yearning for affection. I am so sorry. Greenwald looked up. Jackson, suffering exists here. Did he buy your tear garden too? We're all suffering, all of us. Who, who is Jackson? Greenwald smiled. He slowly reached out and held the boy's hand. Indeed, who is Jackson? Is Jackson God? Greenwald shook his head. He motioned the boy over to the orange vinyl couch. Greenwald leaned closer once they sat. Jackson sold me a bill of goods. You, you bought something from Jackson? Yes, I did. My name is Joseph. How long have you been here, Joseph? He shook his head and scanned the room. I, I, I don't know. Can we leave here? I don't think so. Not until we die, anyway. Joseph moved his fingers around Greenwald's wrist and looked at his plastic identification bracelet. Greenwald had the nurses put the proper name in the tag. Sydney. You can call me Sydney. Joseph smiled. Sydney. They both turned as the frizzy orange-haired Flora, face dabbed with makeup and lips ruby red, strutted into the solarium. Miss Hollywood. Greenwald grinned. She is. A little unshaved bald man, Johnny opened back, moved inside. He bounced around the room bent over and raised his brows, pretending he smoked a cigar. Joseph gasped. Baldback! You don't mind guests, do you, Joseph? No, Sidney. Gather round, my good friends. I'm a star from the land of make-believe, said Miss Hollywood. Joseph's eyes opened and he turned to Greenwald as Baldback nuzzled against Miss Hollywood's blue nightgown. Then why don't you make believe that you're kissing me? Come away with me, my dear Flora. Disgusting little rat, isn't he? Ballback kissed her hand. My lovely little flower. Then he turned to Greenwald and Joseph. Venus flytrap. Greenwald smiled and squeezed Joseph's wrist. What are you in for anyways, Mr. Greenwald? Asked Miss Hollywood. In this prison, I refuse to accept life. Huh? Being Frank Ramirez, that's who they say I am. You need to find a way out. May I suggest a slingshot? A little quick, but it will work, said Ballback. Greenwald sighed and crossed his legs. I'm afraid there is no way out. Then kill yourself, cried Miss Hollywood. More patients, some in wheelchairs, trickled into the room. Some people think that that's the way to go. How you gonna do it? asked Miss Hollywood. Greenwald stood and walked amongst them. No, that shall not be my course. Miss Hollywood fluttered her black, thick eyelashes. You can't be both Ramirez and Greenwald. I am Greenwald, and I've had a grand life. He peered at the people in the hallway and motioned them inside. 
My brother and I opened a clothing store 25 years ago. Sold only the best. We expanded gradually. Last year, we had 55 stores. If you're so smart, what are you doing in here? Asked a large man stuffed in a soft cushioned chair. Greed, my friend, greed. I wanted more. And the answer to my greed came in Germany, a small alpine town. That's where I met Jackson. Greenwald thought back to the tiny chalet in the village. The fluffy-haired Jackson's smooth olive skin glowed by the firelight. He seemed to know Greenwald immediately and wanted to talk business. Full background checks were completed before Jackson approached new prospects. His clients were exclusive and affluent, and he could fulfill their every need. During the discussion as they sipped on amaretto, Jackson sensed Greenwald's boredom with life. For a fee, he would take his clients beyond all earthly sojourns, traveling into realms never before experienced. How much scratch? Ballback scratched his arms. Few people laughed, but most people told him to sit down. Ten million dollars. For what? A little trip? asked Miss Hollywood. No, for the purchase and sale of a tear garden. Greenwald turned. Ballback stood and opened his mouth. He looked around and then sat on the couch. Sounds like a place where you grow tears. Will you shut up? Tiergarten is a German word, an urban park. Jackson promised he could manufacture new realities for me, and he said he could give me a demonstration that very night at his mountaintop chalet. Joseph stared at Greenwald. How? Greenwald shrugged his shoulders. He's a con man, con man, yelled Ballback. Miss Hollywood laughed and then held her false teeth. <laughs> you, you ought to know. He brought me up to the mountain by gondola. Inside a rather extensive snow-covered estate was a 15-foot-high cylinder, maybe 20 feet in diameter. It appeared to have no opening. You sure you weren't some kind of alien? asked Miss Hollywood. I don't know what he was. I only know that an opening formed and Jackson walked me inside the cylinder. Greenwald let his mind think about things he had repressed. He had marveled at the center contoured black table and the connecting lifeline tubes descended from an infinite darkness above. His own exaggerated image reflected imperfectly in the flawless interior curvature. Jackson asked him to lie down. Greenwald smiled, at first reluctant, but moved forward and spread his lanky body over the seamless floating surface. Small clamps similar to a blood pressure cuff enclosed his ankle and wrists. From the darkness above came an aqua glow, surrounded by a well-defined orange border. A mass of bright yellow impulses darted through a body-shaped presence surrounding him. Jackson vanished in the glare as Greenwald lost consciousness. He awakened in the Oval Office in the first sequence, surrounded by a photo opportunity with a group of national businessmen. Someone called him Mr. President and asked him to move to the right as more cameras flashed. People shook his hand and he waved to the reporters. He had sensed a new reality and wondered how Jackson had accomplished it. Ballback stood and saluted. Hail to the chief! The solarium filled with boos and hisses when he started singing.
I was really the president, for a short time anyway. Then I was back inside the tear garden and impressed. Like when they give you a free Disney weekend, said the big guy in the soft chair. Greenwald furrowed his brow and nodded. He moved to the center of the room and spread his arms. Do you ever wonder what it's like to be in the Super Bowl? The 60-year-old, 5'9 and one inch Sid Greenwald raised his hand skyward to quiet the stadium crowd. Three feet away, a row of brutes, teeth exposed and eyes filled with terror, waited for the cue to burst through the line and sack him. Greenwald checked the field clock as it counted down past 40. He screamed through the standing crowd's ritualistic chant. 35, 22, 16, hike! Greenwald rolled to his left. The defensive secondary swarmed over his receivers. Even the flats were covered. One of the gorillas on the line burst through with his hands parring. Greenwald faked and dodged the lineman. More linemen broke through, but one of his guys neared the end zone and broke away from the defensive back. He cocked his arm and in the bright sun aimed and threw as hard as he could. But he only saw the ball spiral away for a few seconds as they bashed him into the ground. Under the weighty pile, the crowd noise grew louder as the players rolled onto the artificial turf. Greenwald, unscathed, crawled out on his belly and jumped up and down as his teammates rushed him. Then he leaped into the air. The clock had run out and they had won by three points. The camera lights hit his eyes as he ran down the ramp. Sid! Sid Greenwald! Sid! Great game, Sid! We're here with quarterback Sid Greenwald, who captured it all on Super Bowl Sunday. Greenwald sat in the chair near the solarium sofa. Oh, what a bullshitter, said Ballback. You must think we're all nuts to believe that one, Sid. You are nuts, said Miss Hollywood. That's why you're in this joint. As she laughed, the group shouted, More! More! Greenwald stood and the room became silent. He spoke in a low, serious tone. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. I've walked on the moon with the astronauts. I've traveled to distant stars and galaxies, to ancient Rome, Greece, and the pharaohs, the great battles of history. I've raided towns as a pirate on the Black Skull, sailed the South Pacific with Magellan, and discovered the New World with Columbus. I've seen genius and the world's great achievements, all and everything. Yeah, well, where is Jackson and why are you here? asked Miss Hollywood. Greenwald saw Springer in the doorway with three other psychiatrists. He stood and took a few steps forward. Yes, why am I here, doctor? I don't have any answers for you. Am I to be trapped forever, or is this a mere passing fancy? Greenwald, all eyes upon him, moved like a cripple, taking his first steps. I am here against my will. The only escape can be death. Death does not discriminate. Well, the answer is life, said Springer. This is a wondrous tear garden. He turned to his friend, and tears formed. We are cursed to spend our days here. What hope do we have? Greenwald slowly collapsed and his red flannel bathrobe spread over his slippers in the cold tile floor. The tears flowed freely now. He heard nurses move everyone out of the room. 
and he covered his face in his bony hands. Jackson clearly had deceived him, or he was gone. They lifted him under the arms, but he assured the nurses he could walk on his own. He left the solarium and entered the dimly lit institution corridor. Springer moved forward and put his hand on Greenwald's shoulder. Sleep soundly in your tear garden, Mr. Greenwald. Greenwald nodded and tightened his robe, and then he stood upright. Thank you, doctor. I will. Springer muttered something to the other doctors as the nurses followed Greenwell. He rounded the corner and faced the corridor to his room. When he saw the rain hit the corner window, a marvelous compunction grabbed him. He spun as if he were playing football again and took the nurses off guard as he bolted for the solarium. They chased him along the glossy floor. Springer, his back to the solarium, chatted with the other three men as Greenwell raced by. Miss Hollywood and Ballback cheered him from the sulfur. Greenwall collided with the solarian doors and burst into the chilling rain. He slipped in the dark and slid across the slick grass, but scrambled to his feet. Heavy sheets of rain whipped against his face as he sprinted toward the distant chain-link fence near the towering incandescent light poles. He neared the silver fence as the institution's lights blazed brightly across the grounds, and he grasped the wet chain-link metal. Like a monkey, he climbed through the fog and up toward the barbed wire. Over his shoulder, he saw an army of nurses and orderlies sweeping across the rain-soaked lawn. He gripped each rigid link, moved higher into the night and closer to the barbed wire. An indistinct voice cracked through a megaphone as his slipper dropped, and he lifted his bare foot onto the thin chain link. He ripped his fingers along the barbed wire, but missed the next link and lost his hold. The air zipped by as the barbed wire barrier disappeared into the mist and the rain hit like bullets. He tumbled into the darkness, weightless and alone, taken and tossed into a pit of nothingness. A single spark pervaded the blackness, intensifying and forming into an aqua phosphorescence bordered with vermilion light. Slowly dissipating, the field dampened and the cuffs loosened around his body. He sat up and stared at his convoluted form reflected along the tear garden wall. Jackson? Greenwald felt the cool air at his back. He stood, legs unsteady, and braced himself against the couch as he gazed toward the flickering gray light outside the tear garden that overlooked a darkened valley oozing with red magnavolt. The cooler air pinched his skin as he shuffled onto a gravel rock cliff Dense, ever-moving, billowing black clouds swarmed across the sky. Alternating green and magenta flashes capped the last vestige of a brilliant blue horizon. His fragile body shook the cold. He cupped his hands and shouted, but no sound came forth. Breathing wildly, he clutched the tear garden opening and backed inside. The blue horizon's glow disappeared as he swung himself onto the couch and the cuffs encircled his extremities. He looked upward into the darkness as the heightened fields appeared and floated like feathers over his body. Someone nudged him. He looked up at Ballback's beady eyes. He ain't dead. Springer appeared with the nurses. Are you all right, Mr. Greenwald? I think so. He sat up and removed the cold cloth from his forehead. Miss Hollywood gawked from the sulfur. You fell right off the barbed wire. Greenwald smiled and then laughed. I understand. I do understand. 
Springer squatted. What do you understand? Springer turned. Joseph tiptoed across the solarian and stopped near the couch. His glossy blue eyes were fixed on Greenwald. He gulped and waited a few moments before his shaky voice echoed around the solarium. Bullfunger. The Last Rites of Dottie O'Leary by Robert P. Fitton. Wingate blocked the entrance and pointed at Carpin. You're in serious trouble, Mr. Carpin. Do you know who the hell I am? I'll tell you who I am. I own Underwood Industries. I worked my way up from being a stock boy. He glanced at the Magic Heavens marquee and then winked at his bleach blonde wife. Wingate nodded. You can come peacefully to answer a few questions, or I will get the necessary orders. You don't scare me, mister. I've got a team of lawyers that will tear you to mincemeat. You can't prove anything. His wife took his arm and grimaced at the plainclothes officer as they headed inside. When they reached the lobby, she leaned toward Carpin. Rick, they have the body. He knows we did it. That was 30 years ago, Rita. Carpin smiled at the hotel manager moving from his office. The statute of limitations for murder never runs out, Rick. Ah, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Carpin, what a pleasure to see you. Carpin looked at the revolving doors. Wingate and his men had left the hotel. I am Mr. Harland. Nice to meet you, Mr. Harland. Tell me uh, about magic heaven. We've heard nothing about it. We have procured the finest magic acts in the world in six separate showrooms decorated in a Bavarian motif. All are dedicated to the art of prestidigitation, I assure you. You will not be disappointed. He escorted them to the elevators. A prodigious black top hat surrounded the far elevator. Well, Dick never takes the elevator. I'm sorry, this is the only entrance to magic heaven. Carpin nodded and moved his hands. All right, let's go. I want to see this place. Good, good. When Harlan pushed a red button between the elevators, a polyester rabbit popped up from a smaller hat. Harlan took out a membership card and stuck it in the rabbit's mouth as if it were an ATM machine. The elevator door, a simulated silver guillotine, moved upward. Clever, very clever. Carpin walked inside with Reader, but as he turned, the guillotine crashed down, and he did not see Harland. Well, where the hell is he? I thought I saw him walk in here. The elevator, lined with gold grain mirrors and an ornate red wallpaper, moved downward. Magic Heaven is supposed to be in the penthouse. Carpin took out his cell phone. Oh, we got out of problems. Wingate didn't travel 3,000 miles for the hell of it. Who are you calling? Russell Medeiros. We'll come clean with him. Tell him we killed O'Leary and we stuffed your body under the freight elevator at Kirshner's. Have him and his people handle any legal issues. Why admit to anything, Rick? He shook his cellular. <laughs> no signal. Great. The elevator stopped abruptly, throwing him against the mirrors. A maroon velvet curtain brushed against the rising guillotine. Carpin was afraid to walk under the blade. Rick, we could end up in jail, or worse. We're not going anywhere. We have enough money to get out of this. He moved near the curtain. Hello out there. 
We were just kids working in a department store. That old woman kept taunting us. Ah, she taunted everybody, reader. I'm telling you, don't worry. Curtin rolled upward. Two men in black tuxedos escorted them past a bar and up the red-carpeted stairs to an exclusive dining and show area. They were seated in the VIP section in front of a table. On stage, a magician finished his card routine and the crowd applauded as he moved behind the black silk curtain. The master of ceremonies walked out on stage. Thank you, Carl, and the magic cards. Our next act comes to us from Las Vegas and has been seen nationally for many years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the great Francesco! I've seen this guy on cable, said Carpin. As the room broke into a thunderous applause, the waitress set drinks on the table, and Carpin quickly raised his glass to his lips. Cheers! The lights dimmed in the midst of a long drum roll, and the room went dark as a quick explosion flashed center stage. A green spotlight shone through the haze, and a Latin man with a goatee and hypnotic eyes passed through the smoke. He swung his black cape, and his blonde assistant materialized from the darkness. Francesco, billed as the master of illusion, produced doves from colorful handkerchiefs, mended broken ropes into a single strand, and finally thrust a sword through a box containing his assistant. Rita chain-smoked cigarettes as Carpin downed straight whiskey. Several times he tried to make a cellular connection, but was out of range, and placed the phone back in his pocket. Francesco's accent boomed throughout the dining room. I need volunteers from the audience. Two people who are not afraid to wander across the limits of the finite. Two people who are not afraid to leave the confines of their earthly existence through the power of the black door. The assistant rolled a simple two-dimensional black door across the stage as Francesco held his fingertips to his temples and fell into a deep trance, rolling the whites of his eyes. Then he gazed into the audience as if he were picking up vibrations from the spirit world. I sense a man and a woman for the final act. Car, Cano, Carpin! Ah, this is the oldest damn trick in the book, Rita, said Carpin. Francesco pointed through the green light to Carpin. You! Ah, no, 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 thank you. Carpin motioned the assistant back, but she pulled Rita up. The applause started, and he reluctantly followed her on stage. Ah, this is bullshit. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Francesco will now attempt a feat never before performed on any stage said the assistant. Carpin stood with Reader in front of the black door. The assistant opened the door and walked through three times. Francesco faced the audience. Nothing behind and nothing above. At the present, this is a conventional door. Francesco stood across the stage, fingers at his temples as the assistant moved back onto the edge of the stage. The great Francesco requests the room be silent as he opens the world beyond the shadows. The room lights darkened in a single, crisp spotlight shone across the door. Francesco, barely visible, spoke in a deeper, almost amplified voice from the stage. Concentrate. We must all concentrate. It is inevitable that everyone passes through the door. Those who would enter for many reasons through the door... The door, the door, the door. 
Carpin chuckled. <laughs> Very effective, I'll give him that. As he turned, Francesco's cape spread through the air again. His cold and dark eyes seemed to hover away from his body as the black door slowly opened on its own accord. Enter! 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 Carpin smiled, took Rita's hand, and walked forward. Just how Francesco would create this illusion would prove interesting. They moved into the murky air and the door closed quickly behind them. Now they stood in total darkness. This guy is the biggest phony I've ever seen in my life, Rita. He felt his way along the wall slats, not there a few seconds ago. How the hell did he do that? Rick, I'm scared. Francesco, we can't see anything. Carpin continued along the wall. The area had a dusty, aged odor. Okay, Francesco, you've done your magic trick. Now take your bows and bring us back to the table. The magician's voice echoed around them. You will not be going back to the table. Do you know who I am? asked Carpin. I know exactly who you are and what you have done. Time may pass, but we all must pay the price of our actions. Die holly selts out a reek. Reader grabbed her husband. Oh, dear God! How would he have known those words? Shut up, Reader. Carpin stopped. Hey, Francesco! That's what Dottie O'Leary said after you swung the axe into her head, Rick. A very clever man who has somehow listened to our private conversations. I'll tell you one thing, Francesco. You won't get away with it. Neither will you, Mr. Carpin. Neither will you. In the darkness, Carpin remembered how O'Leary, as the supervisor at Kirshner's, had unceasingly harassed them, accusing them of carnal acts while working at the store. He had not meant to kill her as he taunted her with the axe and swung it through the air, but she deserved having her skull cracked. But no one knew about her death. He and Reader had so cleverly buried the body below the freight elevator. Gray light formed around a doorway ahead. Carpin took Rita's hand and pulled her forward. He felt a cool metal doorknob and smiled as he twisted it. Quickly, they moved forward into a blaze of light. As the light dimmed, they stood in Kirshner's department store's fourth-floor offices. Rita screamed and held Carpin. She turned toward the metal banister and spindles leading down the stairway to the lower floors. This store was demolished in 1986. Oh, God, Rick, we're dead. We're not dead. He moved past the shelves of dusty, cobwebbed merchandise. Mind control. Clearly he's hypnotized us all, that's all. He'll snap his fingers and it'll be all over. How can we both be here? I don't know, Rita. This is a fancy club. He's paid well. Carpin searched his mind, wondering just how Francesco had known what O'Leary had said in German before she died. They neared the store offices bathed in a dull white light as he pushed open the swinging half-door near the switchboard. A single red light flashed near the connecting plugs. Carpin moved ahead to the store manager's office and passed the faded wall calendar from November 1966. Family pictures were coated with dust and store reports covered the manager's desk. Carpin ran to the window and pulled back the drapes overlooking Main Street, but only saw a ghostly reflection of himself in the black window. He reached for the desk lamp. We're out of here. What are you doing? I'm going to break that damn window. He yanked out the cord, gripped the heavy brass lamp, and hurled it at the Main Street window. The lamp smacked the surface but bounced back onto the carpet. He retrieved it quickly and hacked the glass until he was drenched in sweat. Ah, screw it. 
Carpin again squeezed her hand and ran from the office, but he stopped at the switchboard. He stared at the single flashing red light. Slowly he took the headset in his hand and lifted it to his ear. Loud static like a worn vinyl phonograph record and a persistent hiss filled the speaker. He heard footsteps on the other end. Somebody picked up the phone and a shaky old voice crackled into his ears. He ripped off the headset and chucked it against the wall. What was it, Rick? Coppin grabbed her and pushed her through the half door as they ran back into the store. They would have to exit via the stairs or the elevator. In the indistinct light, he stepped into the main aisle and eyed the staircase ahead. Two sinewy, rigid black electrical cords slithered up the stairs and across the vinyl floor. Carpin retreated past the red flashing switchboard light. Rita's fingernails sunk into his wrist. One of the cords snaked down the aisle and wrapped tightly around her ankles. As Carpin turned to attack, the other cord encircled his knees and he fell like a roped steer. Damn this! The store lights flickered as if they were in an air raid shelter. Carpin clung to a counter leg as the other cord dragged the squirming reader down the aisle toward the darkened staircase. Carpin struggled, but he was overpowered and pulled across the cold floor. On his back, he saw his hysterical wife disappear over the staircase edge. She wailed with each successive thud down into the darkness. Carpin hunched his body and tensed his muscles as he, too, careened down the hardened stairs. His head slammed the plaster wall at the landing, and he flipped down to another staircase. At the next landing, the cords loosened in the dark, and Carpin rolled across a rug inside the store. The store lights popped on. He scrambled on his knees and held his wife in the third-floor furniture and appliance department. We're dead, cried Reader. No, Carpin stood. We're getting out of here. As he turned, the speakers blasted music across the floor. Carpin heard a newscast about the Vietnam War. Oh, you're so clever, Francesco, but it won't work. He grabbed Rita's shaking hands and hoisted her up. More radios and cassette players created a disjointed mix of music and voices. Carpin turned and banged on the metal elevator doors. He heard the elevator cables moving. The doors slid open and he ripped back the brass gate. Rita ran inside as he took the manual controls. Rick, he's got us. Somehow he's got us. Carpin laughed as the doors closed. Oh, yeah. He fiddled with the lever and the old elevator rumbled downward. Nobody knows what we did. The elevator screeched to a stop, throwing them to the floor. The single candelabra bulb above was reduced to a red tungsten glow. Carpin flung off his suit coat and on his knees clawed at the doors. An opening no larger than a yardstick appeared between the second and third floors. What now, Rick? Through here. He backed his body into the opening and fell to the rug below. The elevator started upward. Jump, Rita! Rita hesitated. As the opening narrowed, she leaped and hit the floor. He helped her up again, but her knees buckled. Oh, God, Rick, we are dead. We have to be dead. Shut up. He surveyed the home furnishings and housewares departments. He turned to the staircase once she was able to walk. The upright black cord stood sentry at the entrance. Rita pushed her fingers through her scraggly hair. I can't take any more of this. Carpin held her shoulders, but something cold and wet soaked through her shirt. He looked up slowly. Thick blood dripped from plaster cracks across the ceiling. He heard an almost inaudible voice down the side corridor as more blood moistened his shirt. 
Francesco, you've gone too far. Stop this right now. He headed toward the corridor near the freight elevator entrance. He wiped blood off his cheek as a low rumble shook the building. A high-shelf gondola toppled over and Carpen dove onto the floor. A constrained voice formed in the darkness. Murderer! Murderer! Rick, it's her! It's her! That's impossible. You will pay for what you've done. Carpen took Rita's hand and marched past the fallen shelves. Let's get the hell out of here. A group of mannequins, some missing arms and legs, others with jagged holes in their plastic bodies, surrounded them and attacked them with merchandise from the shelves. Carpen's eyes stung and he was knocked to the floor. Two mannequins grabbed Rita and crunched her skull into the support pole. Carpen held his throbbing eye and leaped to his feet. He ripped a two-by-four from a display. Swinging wildly, he tore the mannequin shells apart. Rita, blood trails over her face, broke free and screamed. More blood rained on Carpen's sticky shirt. The ubiquitous electrical cords had vanished from the lower stairway. We will make it out of here. Rita spoke through her tears. She won't let us out of here, Rick. She won't. He wiped his forehead with his shirt sleeve. We'll get to the first floor and we'll walk out of this place. He darted down the staircase and nodded. She took his hand and they precariously started down. Dim light reflected on the sidewalls and more music played below. Carpen slipped on the slick stairs and Rita lost her footing. He sensed a superior force pulling him as he reached for the banister and tumbled onto the balcony overlooking the first floor. He grasped the iron support rails as the store music echoed erratically. Hundreds of candles stacked on spreading chandeliers burned brightly. Cash registers rang as clerks, customers, and bodies decomposed or dried to brittle ivory skeletons wandered about the store. My God. Rita screamed as Carpen pulled her up. We can't go down there. Yes, we have to go down there. He forced her down the stairs. The music stopped and O'Leary's voice shook the speakers. Die holly shops, Shut up. Carpen reached the first floor and faced a smiling corpse wandering into the men's departments. Illusions, hypnosis. How do you wish to pay for your crime? We're not paying for anything. Nothing is real. The store manager, a wilted rose stuck in his lapel and gray flesh chunks hanging off his facial bones, approached with a rotted smile. I am glad you finally come back with us, Rick. You see, it's been a busy day. If you can punch in, we'll find something for you to do. <laughs> the manager moved down the aisle, but Carpen rushed forward, swinging his fists. He lifted the manager's body as light as balsa wood into the air. The fragile corpse impacted against the counter and splinted into spinning pieces across the floor. Registers stopped ringing. Everyone in the store slowly turned and a long, slow, melancholy chant began. The corpses wobbled down toward him. Long wood axe handles materialized in their hands. He pulled Rita toward the wall as the dead wailed and swung the axes. It was an accident, yelled Rita. Carpin sneered and grit his teeth. No, it was no accident. 
The stagnant air cooled his blood-saturated shirt, and when he turned, the freight elevator shaft formed a wall behind him. Corpses with mushy, skeletal faces and fleshy carved eye sockets swiped the axes. A wide, blood-smeared gash tore across Rita's neck. Another axe broke loose, grazing Carpen's cheek. Rita collapsed as he fell back into the shaft and slammed against the dirt below. He lay half-conscious on the bottom. Burnt wax from blurry red flickering tapers across the basement wafted into the elevator shaft. As he slowly stirred, Rita's head, tethering on her exposed backbone, rolled against his shoulder. Carpen shot to his feet. Rita! As the dead lamented from the first floor above, Carpen refused to look at his decapitated wife. Who's the murderer now? A gray, shaded hand pushed up through the dark dirt and clamped his foot tightly. He kicked with his other foot, finally freeing the hand long enough to extend both his hands upward and grab the opening above. Pulling himself over the top, he crawled onto the basement floor. Where are you? Show yourself! With the axe still stuck in her forehead, Dottie O'Leary emerged from the basement shadows and walked into the eerie, candle-lit glow. From the elevator shaft, a slow, persistent breeze chilled his skin, and shadows danced across the cement walls. O'Leary's steel-blue hair surrounded hunks of moldy flesh, and her yellow teeth were withered to the gums. I have awaited your return, Mr. Carpen. You killed my wife. Oh, no one really dies, Mr. Carpen. Rita, her evening dress wet with blood, walked stiffly like a battery-powered toy. She smiled and her eyes opened as her head wobbled, exposing the severed neck flesh. She's dead. Rita's strained voice had a low, echoing tone. We could never get away with it, Rick. No, she deserved it. He turned and faced O'Leary. You deserve to die. You never let up on us. Lies, constant pressure on everyone you knew. I'm not sorry that I killed you. O'Leary smiled, the embedded axe slowly moving as she nodded. It is worse to be alive with the dead than to be dead with the living. And you, Mr. Carbon, will never leave this store. The main elevator door opened. Deep crimson wallpaper lined the walls and blue gas flame jets lit the glass wall sconces. An immovable force enveloped Carpen as Rita shuffled by him into the car. Dottie O'Leary laughed as Carpen was dragged across the basement. No! No! Carpen was thrown against the wall and peered up from the floor as Dottie O'Leary moved through the elevator's gas-lit doorway. The door slid like fingernails, slowly moving down a school chalkboard. She stared down at him, her eyes dull and lifeless and her mouth hardly moving. The doors fully closed, but Carpen could still not move, and the elevator's light moved downward. Carpen was pulled to the edge and stared at the vanishing light. As he was taken over and tumbled into a freefall, O'Leary's voice echoed down the elevator shaft. Die holy selves had a Wingate pushed his way through the crowd toward the EMTs hovering over Carpen's body. The magician stood with his assistant near the curtains off stage. Carpen lay sprawled in back of an open door and his wife was missing. Is he dead? 
The husky kid in a white uniform looked up. Am I? We couldn't bring him around. Wingate held the court orders in his hands and pursed his lips. Damn. Did he confess to anything? The kid stood with a confused look on his face. He kept repeating something and sounded German. Oh? Die, Holly, Selps, Hatterik? I don't know what that means. Wingate, his lips still pressed, shook his head. He studied Carpin's hardened face. Has even hell its rights? Donnie O'Leary was not something I would usually write. I was advised by my agent at the time to write something gruesome, which I did in L.A., and there it is. The Tear Garden was also written in Los Angeles. Being in my car selling, I would listen to talk radio and a man named, you guessed it, Jackson. Greenwald's name is taken off the actor Sidney Greenstreet of many classic films, including Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon. The Tear Garden is a delightful park where you can relax and enjoy. Greenwald's Tear Garden, let's just say, has a high performance engine. The character Greenwald is nondescript. No Place Like Home was written in Sierra Madre, California, where knowledge of the Kennedy assassination was still in the incipient stage before the release of thousands of documents by the AARB. My blaming the FBI for sitting on foreknowledge was just an interesting twist, but now we know that an FBI bulletin about the assassination attempt in Dallas went out to the field within days of the actual murder of President Kennedy. Next time, three more short stories. One with a man in possession of a remote that can move time backward and forward. A second story about faith and judgment. And third, a similar story to Greenwald with a more poignant meaning for the characters all in a different setting. I'm Robert P. Fitton, stepping inside the Tear Garden. I'll be seeing you next week for the second episode of Compilation. What shall I become today? All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.